0: Now, we're looking at Galatians this term and we're exploring uh, Paul's letter to a group of churches uh, in that kind of southern region of Turkey that uh, he evangelised, he went and shared the gospel with on his first missionary journey. Uh, he preached the gospel. Now, I don't know if you uh, know what the word gospel actually means. It is a, just a normal word that, we've, that the New Testament... I really should have turned my phone to silence, should not I? R2D2 just um, squeaked at me. Uh, Let's just ignore that and cut that out of the uh, sermon recording. Um, The word word gospel uh, was just a secular word that meant good news, uh, that the Christian preachers incorporated in uh, to the New Testament. And so it's become a very Christian word. But back in the day, it was just... Uh, a word that meant like a newsflash. And so you had the gospel of Augustus Caesar in one particular point. Uh, you have, it was a word that was used to highlight uh, good news. And uh, I introduced last week the fact that uh, I believe pretty much everyone. Pretty much everyone is in search of a life that is blessed. And there are many gospels out there. There are many news flashes that are telling us how to find that blessing. It's like there's a map. Uh, the gospels are out there, and they're saying, "Follow my map, and you'll get there." Those those gospels can be religious; they can be secular. And so, you have, uh, for example, uh, Buddhism has the eightfold path. And they say if you walk the eightfold path, you will find uh, enlightenment. Islam has the five pillars, uh, and they are the core to following Allah. Uh, In the West, uh, obviously we have religious forms, but we also have uh, the great Western self-help book. I like this one. You are a fill in the blank. Yeah. How to stop doubting your greatness and start living an awesome life. Who doesn't want that gospel? That sounds like the gospel that's going to give you blessing, isn't it? How to be a badass. Yeah, there you have it. Uh, And there's loads of them out there. There are many, many, many gospels with different visions of blessing. And they promise spiritual blessing, relational blessing, social blessing, economic blessing, political blessing, a life of blessing. But the one thing that all of these have in common is they all depend on you. If you're going to walk the eightfold path, you walk it. If you're going to be submitted under the five pillars, that's your work. If you are going to be the ultimate Badass, if you're going to stop doubting your greatness and start living the awesome life, who does it depend upon? You. It all depends on you. That's a lot of weight, isn't it? And if it goes wrong, whose fault is it? It's your fault. There's a lot of weight there. And you know what? Even though people make lots of promises, and you know these Gospels, because these are part of our society, they don't deliver. Someone who you would think, by the world's standards, has a blessed life, is the pop diva Madonna, yes? Okay, world success, great fame, incredible wealth, okay, a name known around the globe, She was interviewed a few years ago uh, with Vogue magazine and she was asked about what drove her ambition. Let me read to you. She said, Every time I accomplish something, I feel like a special human being. But after a little while, I feel mediocre and uninteresting again. I find I have to get myself past this again. And again, my drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. I have to prove I am someone. Here we have someone who in the world's eyes at the pinnacle of their success feels like a complete failure. Some of us know this. Maybe we've dreamt of a certain thing. We've got that certain thing. And we feel that it's empty. George Michael, another singer, wrote a song called Waiting for That Day. And in it, he says, uh, if all you dream of heaven, what the hell are you supposed to do when your dreams come true? When you get what you're striving for, you realize just how empty they are. And there is this constant way to keep on going, keep on going, keep on going. If you're going to get blessing, it's always that little bit further away, and it depends on you. Ultimately, this vision enslaves us. But is there a message, is there a gospel that brings blessing? Is there something that brings true freedom? And how would you actually know? Well, obviously, you've come to church this morning. It's going to be no surprise that I'm going to tell you that the Christian gospel is radically different to everything else that promises the blessing and freedom in this world. I've got three points this morning. They're there on your notes. Revelation, transformation and implications. Uh, Because Paul gave us an extended biographical narrative, we're going to jump around a little bit. So it's probably helpful to have your Bible open. I'll put stuff up on the screen as it's helpful. So let's dive in. Paul gives us in Galatians chapter 1 and the start of chapter 2, a real blow-by-blow account of what he did in the first almost 20 years of his life in Christian ministry. He does this to answer particular critics who were coming up against him, who were claiming that his gospel was a human gospel, that his gospel was somehow deficient, that he perhaps was not the real apostle that he claimed to be. And so he goes into great detail about what he did and when he saw certain people uh, to tell us and to answer that criticism that is there. And so he writes in this section, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached, the good news that I preached is not from human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul here is saying, I have a message from God. And he claims the authority of God in that message. He claims a divine authorization of a message that he received by revelation. Now, I know someone will go, what's he talking about? You know, did he encounter Jesus and Jesus says, sit down, I've got theology 101 here, we're going to do a crash course. Uh, How did he learn this gospel? When is this revelation meant to have happened? Well, you've got to do some investigation and you've got the book of Acts and you've got sections like this in Galatians and you can kind of put together a picture. I want to do it a little bit tentatively because there are other ways of doing it but I believe the Apostle Paul received the gospel that he preached when he met the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road. So Acts chapter 9. Now, Paul is now known as Saul in this case. Uh, So as you see there, meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple, obviously before his conversion. He went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any of those who belonged to the way... Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now, I'd like to suggest that Paul, as a persecutor of the church, as an opponent of the Christian message that was going out, he would have known what he was opposing. He would have understood the Christian message. He would not have been ignorant of the good news that was preached. He just didn't think Jesus was the Messiah. He knew the Old Testament promised a Messiah, but for Paul, the crucifixion would have ruled Jesus out of question because he knew that in Deuteronomy it's written that if you're hung on a tree, you're under God's curse, and the Messiah couldn't be under God's curse. And so Jesus, who they are preaching, is not the Messiah, so we need to oppose it. And Paul actually says this in Acts 26. He says, I was convinced that I had to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, including executing those who preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Paul was a committed opponent because these people were preaching a Messiah that couldn't be the Messiah because he was killed in a way that demonstrated that he was divinely disapproved of. He was under God's curse. And then Paul met Jesus and the whole world turns on its head. There is a complete paradigm shift. The essential pieces are all there, but all of a sudden the cornerstone comes in and realigns everything. And Paul turns from persecutor to proclaimer. This is Acts 9 again. So just after he's come in, and if you recall, he's been struck blind and Ananias, one of the disciples in Damascus, meets him, prays for him. His sight is recovered And then it records that Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. This guy just a couple of days to get his strength back because he didn't eat for a while. uh, And then all of a sudden he's in the synagogues preaching Christ. So much so, uh, and his whole theology is turned on his head. So back in Acts 26, he says, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said, what would happen? That the Messiah would suffer. And as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. This is the apostle Paul. This is the hater of Christians who turns into a proclaimer of Christ. This is the guy who thought Jesus was under a curse and then he realized that Jesus was under a curse for him and his whole world changed his enemies came in they accused him of watering down the gospel they're dropping unpalatable bits out like circumcision just trying to fit in and please people but Paul answers and he says no my message the good news I preach is the good news that God revealed to me and so he doesn't go and ask approval. It's like if you're at work, imagine you work in one of those big offices and you've got a CEO, you know, the guy or the girl who's over everything and you called into her office and she says to you, I want you to do this, okay? Do you then go and check with marketing if it's okay? No, the boss has commissioned you, the boss has told you to go and do it. Paul's gone and he's met Jesus, And Jesus says to him, go and preach the message, and he does. He doesn't feel he needs to check to see if he's okay with the marketing department of the early church, You know, the the other apostles and the Jerusalem church. He doesn't need to check his commission to make sure they're okay. He just goes and does it. And so he tells us that it took him three years to get back to Jerusalem. And he was only there for a little while and he just hung out with Peter. Um, Don't know really what they talked about. Maybe they were just passing the time, but they wanted to get to know each other. And then he went away and it took him another 14 years to come back. He doesn't need their authorization. And when he does come back, it appears that he actually came back with famine relief. So we read in Acts 11, this account. During some time, Paul's down at a church at Antioch, down on the coast. Uh, Some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for their brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So when Paul says he goes to Jerusalem in response to a revelation, it's a revelation to Agabus and he's going there taking help, financial help for a church in issue. He didn't go up there that they might approve of him. He did discuss the gospel that he preached, not to get their validation, but he recognised that their opposition could derail everything. So he has this concern that they don't come in and oppose him. And so he presents the gospel that he preaches to them privately. Just so he can talk about it with them. So they don't come out and say, actually, Paul's not a a real apostle. But they don't. They don't come in. Who does he do that to? Well, he does it to those held in high esteem. Who, Who are these guys? These were the leaders of the church. This was Peter. This was John. This was James, Jesus' brother. James, John's brother, had been executed earlier. These three people were the key players in the Jerusalem church. They were the ones who were the big names. They've got the credentials, they were there with Jesus. James could probably tell the stories about what happened around the kitchen table back in, uh, in Nazareth, uh, you know, and how Jesus was probably the most annoying big brother that anyone could ever have because you could never blame anything on him ever. You know, who didn't tidy up? It was Jesus, you know. You'd have to always blame the, the, the younger ones. Anyway, uh, these were the people who had the credentials. But you notice that Paul's fairly dismissive about it. Those who seem to be something, whatever they were, doesn't really matter. God doesn't show favoritism. There's a lesson for us here. What qualifies people for Christian leadership? What makes it that a person is suitable to lead God's people? Now, our world... Loves titles. Our our world loves degrees. Our world loves reputation. Loves position. What does Paul say matters? Those things have value. But it really doesn't matter. If you've got your Bibles there, look at verse 8 of chapter 1, when he actually says that if he the Apostle Paul, or an angel from heaven comes and preaches a gospel, surely that's qualification. This is an angel that stands in the throne room of God. He stands before you in his blazing glory. And if he preaches another gospel, what you should do is put on your sunglasses and try and push him out the window. Try and get rid of this guy. He's under God's curse. This angel, with all the credentials that that would bring, if he is not faithful to the gospel, do not listen. Doesn't matter what title, the reverend, the right reverend, the very reverend, the most reverend, whatever those things are. Doesn't matter what's after the name, bachelor of this, master of this, doctor of this. There's value in those things, but they don't mean that the gospel that they preach is any more orthodox What's the test? The test is faithfulness to God's word given from heaven. It doesn't matter how charismatic they are. It doesn't matter how successful their ministry. It doesn't matter how gifted they are. What it matters is how faithful they are to the one who called them and sent them. It's a gospel that comes by revelation. It's also a gospel that produces transformation. Paul writes, verse 13, you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia and later I returned to Damascus. The persecutor becomes the proclaimer. This is the guy who is the highest achiever of the most exclusive sect in Judaism. He was... A Pharisee. These guys were hardcore. And he was a disciple of a key Pharisee. He was zealous beyond many of his peers. So much so that he would do anything to oppose Christianity. The Pharisees would have nothing to do with anyone they considered to be unclean. Anyone that they thought was unholy. Like those Gentiles. And all of a sudden, this persecutor becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. This man who would have nothing to do with the Gentiles, I imagine, all of a sudden, he's hanging out with them, he's visiting them, he's spending time with them, he's friends with them. And not just, you know, Jewish people who are living out in the nations, guys like Titus. He's not even Jewish at all, but he's a co-worker with Paul. What's changed? He's seen Christ. His whole world has been turned on its head. He's seen himself as he truly is. As he sees Christ, he knows himself, and he knows himself as a sinner. So he writes to Timothy this. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Would the Pharisee Paul say that? No. The Pharisee Paul regarded himself as blameless, as perfect in his legalistic righteousness. But this Paul, the Christian Paul, sees, sees his sin. He sees that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. He sees that his efforts to earn righteousness, to earn his blessing from God, was to no avail. He writes to the church in Philippi. He says, if someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now he's arguing that he's the uber Jew. Okay, he is circumcised on the eighth day, perfect. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, regarding to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting to the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. If you talked to Paul before he met Jesus, he would say that he was right before God. And what does he write to Timothy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. See the change. See the change. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider as loss for the sake of Christ. I consider them garbage, literally manure. It's a pretty coarse word that he uses, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ. He realizes that all his efforts, all his strivings were for nothing, but what he strove for, God had freely given to him in Christ. He earnestly was desiring to be right, to be blessed by God. And then the gospel came and said, it's a free gift. It's not your effort, it's Christ's effort. It's not your work, it's Christ's work and it is finished. It is finished. So much so that Paul in two, chapter 2 of, of Galatians verse 4, he speaks of the freedom and freedom is a thread that goes all the way through Galatians. The freedom that is ours in the gospel. A freedom from sin. From its consequences, no condemnation, Paul writes to the Romans, for those who in Christ Jesus, free from its control, that sin's hold is broken on us. No longer is he a slave to sin, but he is a slave to Christ. John Wesley wrote a beautiful hymn that many of us will know that captures this brilliantly when he says, he breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Sin is cancelled and its power is broken. Paul is free of its control and its consequence. He's freed from guilt. He's freed from striving. He no longer has to earn acceptance. It is freely his in Christ. Here's a hymn that um, we're probably never going to sing at Trinity Church Brighton. Uh, Not because it's not a good hymn, but its title is called Love's Constraining to Obedience. Sexy, isn't it? Um, William Cowper, who uh, probably is, I think, England's, one of England's greatest hymn writers, uh, wrote this, and he captures the brilliance of the freedom that is ours under Christ. We no longer have to obey because we must. We obey because we can. Here it is. To see the law by Christ fulfilled. To hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Paul saw God's love for him in Christ and it changed him. He didn't have to do it. He wanted to do it. Why? Because he had seen the one who was worthy beyond all things. He didn't have to earn anything. It was freely given. And so Paul is passionate about this God and the good news that he has given let's explore just in closing some of the implications I've got three there are lots that we could do the first one I've got on the list there is the good news is news and what do you do with news you proclaim it you proclaim it so um I don't really care enough about AFL. Who, who won last night? Did the Crows win? Yeah? Okay, for you who are diehard Crows fans, did you want to come and tell people that the Crows finally got their acts together and actually <laughs> did a decent game? Like, are you excited? It's good news, yes? Yeah? I'm a bit more of a cricket fan. I've been watching the Ashes and I, I go oscillate. I go, I turn it on, eight for 300. Yeah, good. Okay, they'll knock these. No, they've got 60 runs between them. So it's still in the balance. So ask me in two days whether it's good news or bad news. But good news, you want to proclaim it, don't you? When something great happens, if you see a movie that is fantastic, you want others to see it. You read a book that's amazing and just really, you want to share it with others. If you see that God has given you Really, what your heart of hearts long for that you might be truly blessed, you proclaim it. It's not advice, it's not a religious self-help manual, it's news because it's news about what has been done, that Christ Jesus died and rose again to save sinners. Done, finished, proclaim and news must be responded to. We see it in Paul. What's he do? It takes him a couple of days, but I think we can forgive him that. And then he's in the synagogue and he's telling people that Jesus is the Christ. And then he's off into Arabia and then he's back to Damascus and then he's all over the Roman world preaching the good news. Christine's brought to our attention an opportunity to do that at the show. If you want to go and minister and preach the good news amongst those particular people who struggle with mental health issues, talk to me about the the opportunity at Seacliff. Talk to us about partnering, I can say this because she's not here this morning because she's off at a conference, with Lauren Howell, who preaches the good news amongst the students at Flinders. Pray for the Jesus Week that's coming up with the AFES groups across the universities. What a wonderful opportunity. Partner with CMS. Those of us who went to the dinner the other night heard a great story about what God is doing in this world. Good news needs to be proclaimed. Not only is it proclaimed, it needs to be preserved. What's Paul do? False believers come in. They're trying to get Titus to be circumcised to make him a real Christian. What does Paul say? He says, we did not give into them for one second. There's lots of things that as Christians we can be flexible about. Okay, there are things that I think you can legitimately disappear, uh, disagree about. But the gospel is not one of those things. Good news that we are justified. We are declared right with God. We receive his blessing through Christ alone. It is by grace alone. It is received through faith alone. Must be preserved. That's what the whole Reformation was about. That's what Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli and all those people were fighting for, for the truth and the purity and the simplicity of the gospel. And that's not just fighting about ideas, because if you, if you truly love people, you will fight for doctrine. Sometimes Christians forget this. They forget the people and they just like the, the argument. No, we have the words of eternal life. And if we change them, we lose them. There is one cure for sin freely offered to us in Christ. Will we not fight to make that available? Will we not stand firm against those who want to change it? Many of us know this. We've been in churches that have walked away. I am ordained within a denomination that struggles and the struggle is still happening and pray for that struggle. Will we stand on gospel truth and the moment that denomination walks away from that, I walk away from it. Will we fight to preserve the truth of the gospel? The other thing it brings is connection. One of the things I love about this is we see Paul's transformation. Do you think Paul would sit down and have a pork sausage with his, his Gentile friends uh, Prior to conversion. No. They invite him around for a barbie. What is there is fruit shrimp, a few other unclean animals on the barbecue. So next time you have your prawn on the barbie, okay, recognize that if you were Jew, you wouldn't be able to do that. Okay. Uh, seafood, no, nah, can't eat your pelicans either. Uh, good pelican burger, that's there. Uh, but all of a sudden, Paul, he recognizes the gospel breaks all the barriers down. It breaks all the barriers of race because God doesn't save Jews and not Gentiles. He doesn't save Anglos and not Indians. He doesn't save the Chinese, but not the Chileans. His love is for the nations and he brings them in. The gospel breaks all barriers, race, status, He doesn't just save those who've achieved certain levels. Save those of certain IQs. Save just the middle class and upwards because they're polite and that would be such a lovely, boring place in heaven, wouldn't it, if it was just people like us? Or like me, let me just own that. Okay. The gospel breaks gender barriers. It's not just men, it's not just women. It actually brings people together because it humbles and it tells us that it is by no characteristic of our own that we are accepted before God. So I can't look at myself with pride and say, God loves me because I'm better than you. Because God loves me because God loves me. And there is nothing I bring to that equation other than my desperate need. And so the radical social effect is, is that Paul grasped that God doesn't love him because he's Jewish. He doesn't love him because he's a Pharisee. God loves him because God loves him. And he set his love upon him in Christ. And so that means that Paul will sit down and have the pork sausage at the barbecue because of Christ. I don't know if he liked pork or not. doesn't matter. It broke the barriers and it should break our barriers because it breaks down anything that we are tempted to rest upon in pride, in pride. It destroys our moralism. You know that once you've been a Christian for a while and God's cleaned up some of the more obvious sins in your life, you can begin to look down on those people who are maybe not as polite, maybe a little bit more rough around the edges and you kind of look at them and think, oh, have you ever found yourself saying they really need Jesus? You ever found yourself saying that? What's the implication that a nice person doesn't? That a person who's polite doesn't? Everyone needs Jesus and so there is no barriers. It destroys nationalism. It destroys any barrier that we put up that divides people because we are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel, though, doesn't just humble us. It affirms us. It tells us that we're fully accepted, that we are fully loved, that we are God's children, heirs of his grace. It grants us a security that means we can stand. We can stand for him and for the gospel because nothing that the world can say can touch who we are in Christ. Nothing that the world can do can take away what was given freely. In the face of opposition, in the face of rejection, we can continue to act and to speak in love. So I started this sermon with the question, is there a message that brings freedom? Yes. But there is one message That brings freedom. And that is the message that was revealed by God as he sent his son who lived the life that we should have lived, perfect before God, but in our place died for our sins, bore our punishment. And then the father raised him from the dead. That message, that gospel, alone can save. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to spend this time with what Paul has shared with us. We thank you that uh, your spirit inspired him to write these words down and that we see his ultimate faith in the message that you have given to him and his commitment not out of obligation, but out of opportunity. What a privilege it is that we can proclaim as Paul proclaimed the gospel. What a privilege it is that we can live in that gospel. What a privilege it is that that gospel can transform our lives. Father, never let us let it go. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.